0: But how often do we live as if we're someone God never meant for us to be? Part of knowing who you are is knowing who you're not. Hence the name, The Burt Not Ernie Show. I'm so glad you're here. Let's dig into God's promises. Well, hey there, hello to you, and welcome to 2024. Going to be a big year for the kingdom of our God, and I am so thankful for all he's going to do. I'm choosing to praise him, even in the midst of things that are not super fun. Anybody else want to join me in that? Just praise him, worship him, trust him, go all in with him in maybe deeper ways than you ever have before, even in the midst of things that are not super fun. Let's just thank him in advance, fully trusting in his unending love and his immeasurable faithfulness toward his people. God is so good, and I am so grateful. You're listening to the Burt Not Ernie Show, which can be found via the Edify app, as well as other places you listen to podcasts. A special shout out to those who listen via iHeartRadio. I pray that you are blessed abundantly and experience the Lord's love and favor in the greatest possible measure. This is episode number 171. All right, it's time to get back to our series, Every Book of Promise, where we have been focusing on going through the entire Bible, one book at a time, all 66 of them, and honing in on promises that God makes in each and every book of the Bible. It's been a great series so far, and I'm excited to get back into it. Today, we're looking at a book that is pretty well known, um, and that is it's got like an interesting portion of the Bible in this sense that um, you, you see God working behind the scenes. Like his name is not like all over this book. It's really a unique book of the Bible. You read it and you know God is on the move and he's doing things, but he's not mentioned there the way he is in other portions of the Bible. Some of you already know what book I'm talking about. Like many other books in the Old Testament, it takes place during a time of exile, the history of God's chosen people, the Israelites. It's the book of Esther. What a great encouragement for us when we face difficult times. And if we're honest, which I will be right now, we do face times when we feel like we are in some kind of an exile, some sort of exile. Rejection, serious health issues, serious financial issues, loneliness, relationships that are falling apart, transitions, even normal, healthy, good transitions in life, career changes or empty nest or these things are good, but they can still be, they can still be difficult. What about a big move? Like say you've got, you've got this great job post-college. It's a career opportunity. You've prayed for it. You're so excited about it, but it's going to be a big move. And so it's kind of wrapped up together in the exciting, but also like, ooh, this is a little bit, I feel like a little exiled. I don't know anybody there. I'm moving away from all the things I know. These things are a part of life. You can just feel like you're in an exile in so many different ways. Take parenting. They say that for 18 years you see your child pretty much daily, every single day. And then after they leave home over the duration of your lifetime, not your kid's lifetime, your lifetime, you will see your child in total for about one more year. You see them every day for 18 years, and then in total, all accumulated, about one more year total. I think that sheds a little bit of light on why there is kind of a grieving process that can happen when your kids leave home. It is it is a shock to the system, literally. You do not see them every day anymore, and it stretches out into this like whole new vastness, it's just a a very big change. It can feel like an exile. I get that it's not the same kind of exiles that the Israelites were going through at the time the book of Esther was, you know, at that historical moment in time, but God still cares about the seasons that are exiling for us. It's very real. People can kind of be Smoking and joking about some of these things, if you would. Can you tell my husband is a retired military using terms like smoking and joking? But sometimes we joke about things because it's it's painful and we don't really know how to go there. And so we just turn it into a joke. But the reality is these things are they call for adjustments in our lives. They're difficult. Of course it feels like an exile in some ways, these situations I described, and how many others that I didn't mention. How could it not? How could it not? You know, I think that uh, when I think about the empty nest thing, I just want to share this real quick just to see, is there anybody else that feels this way? And you can always, like, message me, reach out to me, send me a text, I am um, me, whatever, like, DM me. Uh, let me know if this is you. Like, there's some people have said, like, I can't wait to kick my kids out. I'm going to change the locks. To me, that's strange. I never felt that way about our five children. And also, when people say that out loud, it, like, reminds me of there's a scene from The Help I don't know if you've read the book or seen the movie, The Help, when Miss Lee Folt says about her toddler, Mae Mobley, Mae Mobley says, I'm hungry, mommy. And, and Miss Lee Folt says, she's always hungry. And all the other ladies around her, they laugh. Everybody but Skeeter. And Skeeter replies, you know, she can hear you, Elizabeth. That's what comes to mind for me when I hear parents speaking like that. And their kids are right there in earshot. You know, they can hear you, right? When you say, I can't wait for these little, uh, you know, whatever you want to call them, uh, basically irritants thorns in my side to get out of my house so I can change the locks. You know, they can hear you, right? That's a, this is not, our children are not cannon fodder. They're not jokes. The Bible says they're gifts from the Lord and blessed are you when your quiver is full. Hello, that's a little bit different than I can't wait for you to get on out of here so I can change the locks. You know, they can hear you, right? They don't feel loved, seen, protected, watched over, valuable, important you know, words have consequences. You realize that, right? You and I, are we are we growing in our understanding of that? That God means it when he says that the power of life and death are in the tongue. That means words count for a whole lot more than we like to believe that they do. So when you're in some kind of exile type situation, the word of God, the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament and then all throughout the New Testament, the whole of it, it holds out hope to you in buckets full, like bucketfuls of hope, not teaspoons, not milliliters, bushels of hope. All you have to do is simply receive the hope that the Bible offers. Some of the greatest passages of the Bible were written during times of exile. Some of the brightest beacons of hope were penned during the darkest days of the nation of Israel. And as it tells us in the New Testament, Everything in the Bible was written for our edification, for us to know and understand who God truly is, how he works in the lives of people, and also so that we would have ample reason to hold on to him, the one who not only authors our faith, but also authors all true hope. And that is where we find ourselves today for this episode of the Burt Not Ernie Show, right in the middle of the book of Esther, chapter 6. We can find hope that will, if we choose to allow it to, bring us out of any pit that we're in and fill us to overflowing with just the certainty that our God is right now working in the details. Right now, working in the details on so many different levels, and he has not fled the scene. Okay, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation, Esther chapter 6, and I'm going to start at the very beginning in verse 1. That night the king had trouble sleeping, so he ordered an attendant to bring the book of the history of his reign so it could be read to him. In those records, he discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot of bigthana I think that's how you say that, and Teresh, two of the eunuchs who guarded the door to the king's private quarters. They had plotted to assassinate King Xerxes. What reward or recognition did we ever give Mordecai for this, the king asked. His attendants replied. Nothing has been done for him. Who is that in the outer court? the king inquired. As it happened, Haman had just arrived in the outer court of the palace to ask the king to impale Mordecai on the pole he had prepared. Okay, sometimes, I'm just pausing right here, sometimes when we. Maybe read this story. We think of it as like you're going to be hung on the gallows. No, no, no. He was going to impale Mordecai. This is the kind of kingdom that King Xerxes was running. Do you know how long it takes you to die being impaled on a pole? It is a slow, painful, torturous death. That was Haman's plan for Mordecai. This is what's happening in real time. But Haman has no idea that the king has just been unable to sleep and has just had the record of the history of his kingdom, narcissist much maybe, his kingdom read to him. And he's now thinking about what can we do for Mordecai who saved my life. So the Haman, I'm sorry, so the attendants replied to the king, the Haman's, the attendants replied to the king, Haman is out in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. So Haman came in and the king said, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? Haman thought to himself, whom should the king wish to honor more than me? I think Haman and Xerxes both might have struggled with narcissism. So he replied, "'If the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes, as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with a royal emblem on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to to one of the king's most noble officials, and let him see that the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse.' Have the officials shout as they go, This is what the king does for someone he wants to honor. Excellent, the king said to Haman. Quick, take the robes and my horse and do just as you have said for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the gate of the palace. Leave out nothing you have suggested. So Haman took the robes and put them on Mordecai, placed him on the king's own horse, and led him through the city square, shouting, This is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the palace gate. But Haman hurried home, dejected and completely humiliated. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends what had happened, his wise advisers and his wife said, since Mordecai, this man who has humiliated you is of Jewish birth. You will never succeed in your plans against him. It will be fatal to continue opposing him. While they were still talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and quickly took Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. That's Esther chapter 6 verses 1 through 14 from the New Living Translation. You probably know the backstory, but Mordecai served the king during the exile and he was Jewish. Haman hated him and that hate led to a plan to exterminate all of the Jews, not just just Mordecai, but all of them from Xerxes' kingdom. And that was what Mordecai knew. Okay, this is what Mordecai knew until the moment that Haman showed up with the king's horse and the king's robes to lead him around the city square, declaring that he was being honored by the king. He didn't see this coming. He didn't see this coming. What he knew was that he's in exile and death, annihilation of him and all his people is looming. And then here comes Haman, his arch nemesis to do this thing for him that must have shocked Mordecai. Mordecai could not see how God was working behind the scenes. He did not know that the king could not sleep. And so the record of his own history was read to him by his servants. Uh, And also, as I mentioned earlier, that seems a bit narcissistic because it is. I mean, he was a great king, but it's still narcissistic. This is another great reminder for us that even in exile, under a tyrant who was powerful beyond compare and dangerous, the brutality of his kingdom. Uh, Whoa, Nellie is all I can say about that. Even under a raging, cruel narcissist who only focused on himself, even in that mixed up mess, God can bring a stark reminder of the good that you've done, the right things that you've done, and God can make a way for you to get what he wants you to have. It's not your due. It's kind of what God says is due to you. And he can make a way for you to get that. He's always working in the details. All that God did behind the scenes reminds us of how gracious he is, that he really is in the details. You know, the saying is the devil's in the details. And that's true because the devil is a mimic. And so, of course, he's fiddling in the details because God works in the details, but even the devil is God's devil, as Martin Luther said. And so we can trust and even expect God to do things beyond our expectation, behind the scenes, that we will have no way of knowing that he's doing. Can you remember that? The next time it feels dark and heavy and all hope seems lost, will you remember how God took care of Mordecai's enemy Haman and made him to be the one to give Mordecai the king's reward and honor, and beyond that, who do you think was impaled? Do you think Haman ended up impaled on the on the you could call him gallows? It was more disgusting than gallows that he had set up for Mordecai. Yes, he actually lost his life there as he was told by his wife and his friends, just can't succeed it will utterly fail. That was the truth because God was on the move working in the details. Can you remember how this all played out the next time you're in a a difficult tight spot and you feel like you're in exile? All because Xerxes couldn't sleep and then was reminded of a great thing that Mordecai had done for him in the past. He didn't go looking for info about who had spared him from an assassination attempt. No, he was reading about his own life, his own self. Go on with your bad self there, Xerxes. He might have been all puffed up about his own greatness. Who knows? But then, boom, he sees that his life was spared by someone who had never been honored, never thanked. Uh Aha, there it is. Exactly how our God works. And Haman went home humiliated. Yeah, Yeah, I bet he was. I bet that you could look at that and consider that like an extreme understatement. He was humiliated. Even his wife and his friends could see the writing on the wall that his evil plot against Mordecai and all Mordecai's people, the Jews, would come to nothing. It will be fatal if you continue opposing him. That's what they said. It will be fatal if you continue opposing him. Sometimes when you won't bow to someone, which is how it was with Mordecai and Haman, Mordecai was not going to bow to Haman. Haman was not the king and he was not the one true God of Israel. And so Mordecai wasn't going to bow to him. Okay, sometimes when you won't bow to someone, bow down to them, kiss the ring in some way, they grow in hate. By the way, when you see that kiss the ring thing happening, Uh, And there is a, um, I'm going to call it what it is, a false religion, a false version of Christianity. It is dark and occultish and not cool. And there is that kissing the ring that happens. When you see the kiss the ring, uh, run away. I'm just telling you what, okay? And when you have to kiss the ring in some way, but you won't do it, people will grow in hate. God sees this. There may be people who will grow in hate for me just for saying what I just said about kissing the ring. Uh, People see it. They hear it. But you know what? God hears and God sees all and he's working behind the scenes. So it doesn't really matter that much that you could have, you know, all of the forces of the entire earth against you. And if it's you and God, you have the victory. We need to remember this. God works behind the scenes and all the little details like sleeplessness and he brings out of it exactly what he chooses. Isn't this good news? Isn't this really just the promise of hope? The promise that God sees, he is El Roy, R-O-I, El Roy, and that means the God who sees. One of his names is El Roy, the God who sees. He is Yahweh Roy, the God who sees, the God who sees you. He's working behind the scenes in the things that you cannot see. He's trustworthy. He's true to his character, and he keeps all his promises. And this hope is what we find in the book of Esther. It's a promise to us. That our God will not set us aside. He is not going to leave us at the mercy of those who hate us. He's never going to fail to make note of when we've done the right thing, even when we're in a season of exile. That's a pretty solid promise to stand on as we begin the new year of 2024, isn't it? Let's get excited about the hope that we have because our God sees and He is working. In all the details that involve us, let's get excited about that. And I have one more tiny little snippet to add here at the end. Um, in the past, a couple of different times, I have mentioned a movie that has a scene in it that is it's um it's powerful because they're quoting the Bible. I want to give you a disclaimer. This is not a movie that you should grab. Uh, Rent on Amazon and push play in front of your kids. This movie is so real. There is language out the wazoo in it. It is so real and so brutal. It is actually a, a very accurate picture of the extreme evil that... That man can be that actually really happened during World War II. It's the movie Fury, F U R Y. It's the tank movie that I had mentioned before, where there's a scene in the beginning where they're talking about, Are you saved? And the new guy, Norman, is like, Oh, I've been baptized. I didn't what he asked you. You need to listen. What he asked, Are you saved? Because what you're about to see out there, you're going to need to know Jesus, right? Like, there's those things in it. But then the movie is like, There is graphic violence. There is extreme language. I do not want to say go watch this movie. If you want to see the clip that I mentioned regularly where they're in the tank and they're going to die. It's like five guys in a tank that has a busted track. So they are stuck in place with 300 Nazi SS soldiers who are not happy about the way the war has gone. I mean, they're going to they're going to kill you, skin you alive, kind of kill you. They know they're going to die. And there's a moment where one of the characters whose nickname is Bible, because he just is constantly reading his Bible when they're not fighting. Um, You know, he just is, he sees the Lord's hand in everything. He says, when I'm, uh, there's a verse that often comes to mind, he's referencing war. He's been all the way from this tank, all the way from Africa. Now they're all the way into Germany. That's a lot. If you don't know much about World War II, take my word for it. That's a lot. They've seen a lot that's a lot to be a tank crew still together, save this one new guy. That's a lot. He says, there's this one verse that I remember, that I think of, and it's from Isaiah. Here am I, Lord, send me. And then there's another few minutes later in this battle, um, one of the, you know, the kind of the, the leader of the group. I never actually find out his name. I know he's not an officer. Uh, I know that much. But like Don, he references 1 John. It's about who gets to see the father. He's encouraging Bible, okay? And then there's a scene where Bible dies, and the young guy asks Don, is Bible okay? And Don's response is, he's home. Okay, listen, those are the things that are moving and powerful because they're based on God's truth. I'm not going to tell you to go watch that movie. It is up to the eyeballs in the reality of what World War Two was, and if you know me in real life, then you have an idea of how many books I have read about uh, what the Nazis, the Germans, did not just to the Jewish people, uh, to the French, to the uh, to the nine hundred day siege of Leningrad in Russia, um, Stalingrad. You know the one point five million boys that died there. I, I could just go on and on and on. Like the it's astronomical the the volume of just death and destruction, it really is a picture of man at its worst. And I think we're probably entering an era when we're going to see that kind of stuff happening again. So um, it's a shock and awe movie. I don't necessarily recommend it. But those particular scenes are, they're they're the perfect counterbalance. A handful of words from the word of God perfectly counterbalances everything, just the mayhem and the evil and the darkness that's surrounding these few guys in this tank. It's a beautiful picture of what hope really is. But I wanted to give that disclaimer in case you think, oh, she mentioned it on the podcast. We can probably watch that as a family movie night. No, 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 no. Not a good idea. As an adult who maybe thinks you can understand that this is not prettied up version of war. This is what war was. You might be able to watch it. It's, it's pretty overwhelming, though. And, and make a note of this. It only covers basically like one day in the life of this tank crew. One day. It's crazy. It's realistic. There are a lot of aspects of it that were very well done because it's very, very, very realistic. I do not recommend that you watch it, especially not with your children. But you can look up the scenes where they're quoting the Bible verse, quoting Isaiah in the tank scene in Fury, and you can probably watch it and you'll get enough of it to understand the emotion behind it. So I wanted to put that out there because I feel terrible that I mentioned it and didn't give this huge disclaimer of like, and do my husband and I sit around and watch terrible movies like that all the time? We do not. It's one of very few handful of movies like Saving Private Ryan films that we've watched because this is what happened. This is what happened. It is the depravity of man. The language rips at my heart terribly, but so does the death and destruction and the grief and just the picture of what was, and also how sad it is that we're not even a hundred years removed and it's kind of been forgotten what happened there. So all of that to say, don't watch it if you can't stomach it and it's not for everybody. It's tough to watch, but be encouraged. That speaking the word of God out loud, even in extreme exile, and believe me you, they felt pretty exiled sitting in that tank, right? I know it's a movie, but it is kind of based on some real tank things that happened in that war. You would feel pretty exiled when your track is busted and you can't move and you're trapped and you're in enemy territory. You feel exiled, but speaking the word of God out loud shifted everything in that tiny little space. And they had hope. They had hope because they were speaking the word of God and believing it, can you take that part of it and apply it to your life somehow in the coming days and weeks? Believe the Lord. Believe the Lord. Believe him enough to speak what he has said in his word out loud over your life, even in your darkest moments, and trust him to let light shine like the first break of day, like daybreak and just growing ever and ever brighter. Over your life and your circumstances and your situations. And final thing I want to say about this is when Bible dies and Don says he's home, can you think of a better commentary on your life at the end of it than someone who has been with you through thick and thin the most extreme situations of life to have seen the way that you loved the lord and trusted him and were all in living for jesus jesus was your everything so much so that in the extreme of extremes at the end of it all they could say you're home you're home with him see they don't those aren't words that we use about people who don't know the lord they're not home that's not how this thing works there is no no um you know man upstairs. It's just not the way it is. It's home if we know him. There's nothing better that can be said about my life and your life at the end of all things than she's home. He's home by people who've seen you live it. They know. They know that Jesus is your everything. May that be true of us in 2024. And not just on our dying day, but so much so right now as we live as we live for Jesus day by day, that we would point others to the one who has all hope, the author of life, the one to which we want them to one day step into eternity and be home with him. All right. I'm going to wrap it up for now. This was a bit of a, well, no, not too long of an episode about the normal link that it should be. Thank you so much for listening. Lord bless you. Remember the hope that the story of Mordecai's life brings. God is working behind the scenes in the details that, that regard you about your life and in your life and in the lives of others as it pertains to you. No matter who they are, God is working. Don't forget that. Hold on to hope and don't let it go because it is, um, it is life to our souls what hope is. And our hope, all our hope is in Jesus. Happy New Year. I hope you have a truly restful rest of your day today. And I'll see you back here next time. Bye-bye.